As many of you probably know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. As you might guess, since the time I knew what football was, I was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. What you probably don't know and probably aren't old enough to remember is that there used to be a terrible uh, and a, a tremendous rivalry between Pittsburgh and Oakland. And as it turns out, Oakland was accused of um, this terrible football sin. When other teams, especially the Steelers, would come to town and they were going to kick extra points or field goals, Oakland would put a deflated ball on the field. <laughs> to make it harder. In fact, it, at the time, it was called deflate <laughs> And so, since that time, I've, I've, I've literally hated Oakland, and I thought this was the most unfair thing in the world, and I thought that John Madden then should have been put in jail, and I still think he ought to be put in jail. But that's an example, one small example of unfairness, but each of us encounters these kinds of unfair situations every day in life, every day. But I ask you, what if we kick that up a notch? Now, we probably have all seen a few years back when, when Al-Qaeda was reigning in the Middle East, there were 23 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded on uh, the shore of the Mediterranean by some, some of Al-Qaeda. And this was a, a video that was published around the world. These men went to their death de declaring Christ is Lord. Now, in my lifetime, I don't know that I've ever seen a more vivid example of true righteousness. There are men who are going to die, who are giving up their lives freely, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if that's not faith, I, I guess I just don't know what faith really is. Um, what's, what's sick about that is that these righteous men were being killed for their faith. And at least at the moment, we, we, in retrospect, we see now it didn't wash out this way, but it, at the moment, it also appeared that wickedness was reigning, was ruling, was being rewarded. They, they got worldwide notoriety for doing what they wanted to do. They showed their pictures on screen around the world. These kinds of um, incidents make you wonder, reasonably wonder, does God see this? Does God know this is what's going on? Does it, does it matter to him? Does he care? My answer to that is yes. Yes, he does. But you can rightly and reasonably ask that question when you see the, the righteous suffer and the wicked win. And Psalm 92 actually is one of God's answers to that question, does God care? Psalm 92 is an answer to that question. But before we get to that, I need to talk to you a little bit about um, poetry. <laughs> now, none of you would have guessed me to be a poet. Um, but anyway, that if you were going to write something today, and many of you have suffered this reading my emails, when we want to make something, when we want to emphasize something, we do it through things like bold, italics, color, and all of my emails to you end up being that way, right? The Hebrews didn't have bold and italics. In fact, if you were to read the Hebrew text, it's, there's no delineation. There's no word markers, no spaces. Um, so they need another way to uh, emphasize an idea. And that emphasis came for them through repetition. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've heard what I just said in, in other ways. Uh, like, for instance, 
uh, you, you hear Isaiah's uh, declaration of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We repeat it three times because God is really holy. It's not that he's just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Three times, thrice holy, three times holy. So this idea of repetition is the way Hebrew poetry emphasizes ideas. So, uh, and, and you'll notice it particularly in the Psalms, but it, it's also true in other uh, Hebrew writings, in, in other areas of the Bible. There, there's, uh, the, this repetition is called parallelism, and there are many kinds of parallelism, but, but the ones that I want to talk about today are three in particular. Synonymous parallelism, synthetic parallelism, and antithetical parallelism. Now, Synonymous parallelism is when successive verses say the same thing, just in different words. Um, here, here's one example. It, there, there, there's an example in, in today's text, but I, this is this is one that's maybe a little bit better. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. That's from Proverbs. You, you hear the, the two phrases. They're saying exactly the same thing. There's life. In the way of righteousness is life. Life is the emphasis. And in the second is, and in this pathway, there is no death. Life being the same thing as no death. So that's synonymous parallelism. Synthetic parallelism is where the second thought builds on the first thought. And here's another example from, uh, we, we read Psalm 1 today. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's that's antithetical. If we look at in today's Psalm 92, verses um, 1 through 3, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, almost high. It, verses 1 through 3 are all about worship. So the first verse says, we ought to praise God. We ought to thank Him and praise Him. Verse 2 says, we ought to declare His loving kindness. Same thing. Worship God. Uh, and faithfulness in verse 2b. Then in three, and we should do it on different instruments, harmoniously. All three of those are, are about worship, and they build on one another to emphasize the idea of how and um, in what ways we can worship God. So that's synthetic parallelism. And then the third is uh, antithetical parallelism. That's where uh, the second verse says the opposite of the first. So again, from Psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the second part is, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's promoting righteousness and condemning uh, ungodliness. So they stand in opposition to one another. So those are the three main things. And you'll see these um, throughout Psalm 92. But there's another, there's another method of emphasis that's called chiasm. It's a little bit harder to explain. You know, in American poetry, when we have these rhyming schemes like uh, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. So there, the two successive lines rhymed. And that would have been A, A, symbolically. A and A. The example that I have is from Psalm 92. If we look at verses um, 12 through 15, think about letters here. 12A is the letter A. 12B is the letter B. 13 
A and B are each lettered C, then B, A. Can, if you can picture this, it's like a chiron. A, B, C, C, B, A. Does that make sense? I know I'm not illustrating this very well. Uh, the, the, the emphasis comes by parallel being separated by more than one verse. Yes, that that's it's key is in Greek X. This is half of an X. <laughs> it, let, let, me, let, me, let me try to explain this. I, I was going to do this in the sermon, but I'll, we'll, we'll come back to it again. So in 12, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. And in 14b, they shall be fresh and flourishing. Both of these are referring to the righteous, and both of them call them flourishing. Are you with that? In 12b, he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. In 14a, they shall bear fruit in old age. Now, on the surface, that doesn't really sound like they're the same, but they are, because if you think about it, the cedars of Lebanon, the cedars that were, were talked about in the Bible, that were used to build the temple, those same cedars are still alive in Israel right now. They've lived 2,000 years. Now, they're, they're nowhere near the force that they were, that they were 2,000 years ago, but there's, some of them are still there. The point is that these cedars are growing and living, and uh, they shall bear fruit in old, old age. That is, the cedars live to be a long time, the righteous will live a, a long time. So those are saying the same thing. Then right in the middle, 13, those planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. In both of those uh, phrases, it's talking about the righteous having permanence in God's presence. They're planted, plantings have permanence, and, f and they will flourish in the courts of God. So do you see the ABC CBA structure? So that's chiasm. And there are three, three of those key chiastic structures in, uh, in Psalm 92. I'm going to talk about two of them, and if you can, we can maybe discuss the third in Sunday school if you'd like to. So, Let's uh, turn to the psalm itself. Again, verses 1 through 3 are a discussion of worship. It's, the psalmist is calling everyone, everywhere, to worship God. And basically, verse 1 is who should call. Verse 2 is when you should call. Verse 3 is how you should call. So, in verse 1, it's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praise to your name, O Most High. There's no qualifier here. Everybody in the world should give thanks to God. This is a good thing. We praise His name because He is the Most High God. We're going to get the, the purpose clause, the real purpose clause in four in a minute. But everyone should give thanks. And when should you give thanks? You should declare His kindness in the morning and His faithfulness every night. That is, worship is not a part-time job. It's all day, every day. God deserves our worship in the morning, in the evening, and all day through. And how should you do it? Well, the psalmist gives us a couple of examples. You should do it on instruments of ten strings, on the lute, on the harp. But whatever you do, just do it with a harmonious sound. Our praise to God ought to be glorious. It ought to sound good. And if, and if we have the ability to do it better than that, we should do it better than that. 
So anyway, verses 1 through 3 are all about worshiping God. And this is, again, synthetic parallelism. But it doesn't answer the question. Verse 1 through 3 does not answer the question, why should you, why should you uh, praise God? But well, we get the answer to that in verse, verse 4. Verse 4 says, For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. And then in 5a, Oh, Lord, how great are your works. It seems pretty clear the uh, psalmist is, is preoccupied with the works of God. So the question is, what are the works of God? Now, if you read the, the, the confession, you could probably figure that out. And I guarantee you the, the psalmist didn't have our confession in front of them when we wrote this, but they came to the same conclusion. But to illustrate that, let me just give an example. You, you all have shoes on your feet, right? So the question is, why do you have those shoes on? So I'm, not, I'm not looking for an answer. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the an answer. <laughs> well, part of it has to do with um, what was your mood this morning when you woke up? Did you like this pair of shoes better than another pair of shoes? Maybe it had to do with what you had for breakfast. Maybe it had to do with whether or not you stepped in mud yesterday. Uh, whatever. There, there's a, a myriad of reasons why you chose those particular shoes. But you could not have chosen those particular shoes unless sometime before that you actually went out and bought those shoes. Well, when you went out to buy those shoes, you had that same sort of uh, matrix of, of conditions that caused you to pick that very pair of shoes. Again, it might have been what you ate for breakfast that day. It might have been the mood you were in that day. It might have been how much money you had in your pocket that day. It might have been what store you were in that day. But there are a whole slew of things that caused you to buy that pair of shoes on that day. But then again, you couldn't have made that decision unless there was a whole lifetime of other decisions that went before that, like uh, what school you went to, how, uh, what kind of job you had, how much money you make, what your parents taught you. But then none of those things could have happened unless your parents passed on those things to you. But how did your parents come to the point of bringing you around, bringing you to life? Well, they had to make a myriad of decisions every day, all, the, all their lives up until the day you were born. And the same was true of their parents. And their parents. And their parents. All the way back to Adam. But of course, Adam couldn't create the world unless God created him. So the reason you're wearing the shoes you're wearing today is because God created the world and has governed everything since then. Two reasons. God created the world and everything's happened since then. Now, that sounds silly, maybe. But if you read the, our confession, it will tell you there are two things that God does. He, he, God executes his decrees in two ways, through creation and through providence. So everything else that God controls is called providence. So those are the things that matter. And the psalmist is telling us these are the works of God, and these are the reasons why you ought to worship God. Because everything you know, everything about your life, everything that exists, exists because God created a world, 
and because he's governed it through providence ever since then. And that's worth praising God. Understand? It's not just that you should praise God, but you should be glad. You should be glad about God's works. And not only should you be glad, you should triumph in God's works. And in fact, you will triumph in God's works if you trust in Christ. Because that's part of God's providence. And of course, creation is, as uh, who was Augustine said, this is uh, God's theater of redemption. Creation is God's theater of redemption. So it's all right there. So those are the works of God. As we move on, God has divided up the world by his providence into two classes. There are, according to the psalmist, the wicked and the righteous. And these two classes of people uh, have distinct character and they have distinct fate. And the psalmist goes about telling us about that. So in verse uh, 5b through 7, he tells us the, uh, the curse of the wicked. God's thoughts are very deep. But this is 5b. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. What God does, how God acts in this world, is foolishness. We read this in 1 Corinthians 2, right? The, the, uh, the unchurched person, the, 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 the non-Christian, the unbeliever, had no understanding of God. And no, no understanding of what God's doing. But we've been given the mind of Christ so we can see what he's doing. Anyway, the, the, the psalmist is telling us no more than what Paul told us. That the sense of man doesn't understand what God's doing. Has no clue about his, his creation. Has no clue about his um, providence. Look at verse 7. When the wicked spring up like grass and when workers, all workers of iniquity flourish, there's a reason that happens. What is that reason? It is that they may be destroyed forever. There is a purpose. There is a purpose to unbelievers in this world. We heard this in, uh, in Jeremiah. He said exactly the same thing. That, um, uh, excuse me, it was in Romans also. Uh, does God not have the right to make some vessels for, um, for good and some for evil? Um, so, there's a point to uh, the curse of wickedness, and that is that they live in blindness, and they are doomed to destruction. Now, I want to skip over verse 8 and 9 for a second and jump down to verse 10. Um, these are the blessings of the righteousness, and they actually run from 10 to 15, but I just want to deal with 10 and 11 for a second. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. So in juxtaposition against the cursed, or in opposition to the cursed, uh, to, the, to the wicked, to the unbelieving, the righteous are given strength. That is my horn. My horn means strength. It stands for strength. My strength you have exalted like a wild ox. You made me as strong as an ox. You've anointed my head with fresh oil. Uh, that anointing is God's blessing throughout the Old Testament. Um, my eye is seeing my desire on my enemies. I didn't crush my enemies, but you crushed my enemies, and I have seen you crush my enemies, or will see you crush my enemies. And my ears have heard my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. Again, 
I didn't do these things. God did these things. But these are all the blessings that come with being righteous. Now, there's more after that, and we'll get to that in a second. But I want you to notice that uh, 6 and 7 are about the wicked, and 10 and 11 are about the righteous. Remember, we talked about um, antithetical parallelism. Here is another example of that antithetical parallelism, the, the, the curse of the wicked versus the blessing of the righteous. But notice that stuffed right in between those, those two pairs of verses is um, 8 and 9. And 8 and 9 are about the guy who manages the curse of the wicked and the blessing of the righteous. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. That is, the God of providence, the God who meets uh, out the curses on the wicked and the blessings on the righteous, is right in the middle of all this mess. There's the mess of the righteous, or uh, of the wicked being cursed, and there's the mess of the righteous getting through their lives through the blessing of the Lord. But standing right in the middle is the God, the God who is on high, the God who is transcendent above this world, and who is forevermore. The eternal God who is above us is, is centered in the middle of our strife, in the middle of the, the uh, conflict between the, the cursed, or excuse me, between the uh, wicked and the righteous. And he is, in fact, the one who causes the enemies to perish and the workers of iniquity to be scattered. He's the one who has the power, the authority, the strength to, uh, to scatter the enemies and to cause them to perish. So here we have another of those chiasms. The antithetical parallelism on both sides of the middle is God. Wicked, God, righteous. But those blessings that we just talked about which were all individual blessings, that is, blessings to you and me as individual people, are also corporate blessing for the righteous. And we see the corporate blessing for the righteous in 12 through 15. The righteous shall flourish like a palm. We already went through these, but let's do it again. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, who shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. God promises to the righteous that they will flourish, they will be established, and they will be in the presence, in the house of God. And it just falls short. It just falls short of making the promise of everlasting life. It isn't here, but, but the, the implication is the same. These are long-lasting, the righteous are long-lasting, who flourish even in old age, whatever that means. So, just like with the with the uh, wicked, there was a purpose to their being. Their purpose was that they would be destroyed forever. So, in verse fifteen, we see the purpose of the righteous to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. That is, God promises these blessings to each of us individually and to us corporately so that we would go out and share that God is righteous so that we would be the ambassadors of God in the world. That's our purpose, to worship God and enjoy Him forever. That's 
question one of the Shorter Catechism. There only remains one question, and that question is, who is righteous? This song talks a lot about the wicked and the righteous. We, we all like to think we know who's wicked. Uh, we can name them. Uh, they work with us, and they live next door to us, and some of them maybe live in our house. But we can name them, but who's righteous? Who is it that's righteous? Now, to be sure, the psalmist doesn't say explicitly, but but he does tell us who it's not. If we go back to verses 10 through 15, well, even, even before that, remember we talked about the curses of the wicked. Regardless of appearance, remember, in, in, in verses 5, 6, 7, it, it says... Um, the sense of man does not know, does not understand. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when the workers of iniquity flourish, when it looks like the bad guys are doing really well, uncommon. It, the appearance of success, the appearance of strength, the appearance of status, does not necessarily mean someone's uh, righteous. It also doesn't mean they're wicked. Appearances are things that you should, just shouldn't judge by. But we do know that it doesn't come from what you do. Your efforts aren't what make you righteous. My efforts aren't what make me righteous. And we see that in verses uh, 10, 12 to 15 again. Because the righteous will flourish, uh, and they'll grow, and they'll be planted, and they'll flourish, and they'll bear fruit, but none of those things are things that we do. Those are things that God does to us and through us and in us. And in verses 10 and 11, we're ex- uh, our, our horn, our strength is exalted. We're anointed. We see our eyes, our, our, desire, our desires on our enemies. We hear our desires on our enemies. None of those things are things that we do. Those are, those are things that God does in us, through us, around us. So none of this happens because of our work. None of this happens because of what we do. It happens because of what God does. Because God has chosen you by faith in Christ, by faith in Christ, to be righteous. In fact, the only thing that determines whether or not you're righteous is whether or not you believe in Jesus, whether or not you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even that has its own um, deceptive appearance. I don't know if... if, um, if you, if you remember 10 years ago or so, there was a guy named Harold Camping who had a radio ministry, and his, his claim was that the church age was over. And he, he actually appeared to be very successful. It was a worldwide ministry. There, um, he s- stole people from churches all across New York. Uh, something like 10% of the church population went over to that nonsense. And they actually had an ministry around the world. Uh, people donated huge sums of money. Of course, uh, his ultimate prediction was that the world would end 10 years ago on some October 21st or something like that. And of course, it was proven wrong. Um, but all outward appearances for a good many years looked like he might be right. Of course, that's all nonsense. On the flip side of that, there's probably no greater example in all of history of right of the righteous suffering than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
has spent his whole life in poverty, if you will, in, in material poverty. He lived the perfect sinless life. He sacrificed himself for others. He healed others. He gave to others. And then he was nailed to the cross for our sins, for others. Everything about his life was for others. And yet he still suffered at the hands of those who appeared at the time to be righteous. Those who appeared at the time to win. But they didn't. We know that they didn't. In the long run, they didn't. The, the Church of Christ has uh, grown ever since then, even to this day, continues to grow. Um, Christ is Lord. And we're one day, one day, going to share that victory with you. Um, so appearances are difficult. And not, you should not trust the appearance much. That's one of many lessons we've got to learn from this psalm. So putting aside what we've heard about this, let's just think through what are the implications for us today. The, the first is that, that we shouldn't judge by appearances, and I just gave you two grand examples of how appearances can be completely wrong. And that sort of means that what we need is not to take a look at the, the circumstances that we see right now, but we need to have a longer vision. Uh, frankly, we ought to have the eternal vision. We ought to look back at our lives from eternity because that's where we'll spend eternity. That um, that we, we, can't, we can't determine success, failure, righteousness, wickedness uh, from an ephemeral one-time, ten-minute conversation. So we ought not judge. We ought not be judges. We can't be judges because we don't have the right perspective. The second thing is that... Um, Back in verses 2 and 3, we saw that we need to worship God full-time. This is not a part-time endeavor. Um, we don't worship God when it feels good or when we're not on vacation or when we don't feel up to it. We do it all the time because it's what God deserves. Not because we have to, but because we should want to. We should be glad and triumph in creation of providence. It's not just that we worship God. It is that we, we worship Him because He is in control. His control is of everything, everything that happens. Everything that comes to pass happens because God has ordained that it should come to pass, including your life, everything that's good in your life. In verses 9 and 11, we see that um, there is a purpose to both the wicked and to the righteous. The, the purpose is for their destruction, and for the righteous, and it's that we should proclaim God in all of his works. That we should declare God is upright, our rock, and in him there is no unrighteousness. And I guess the, the most important thing, the best thing, is that uh, we should rest in the provision, in the protection, and in the preservation of God. We saw that in verses 12 through 15. God's going to plant us in his courts. He's already done it because of faith in Christ. You are already part of the kingdom. He has planted you, and you will grow and thrive in that kingdom, not just for today, not just for the rest of your lives, but for all eternity. Rest in Christ. That's the charge for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you've called us to be your own. We thank you that you've granted us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that every single minute of every single day is under your personal love and care and protection and provision. We thank you for all the ways that you have indeed provided for our lives, that you've given us homes and families and communities and work 
the things you have done, our lives are not our own, but they are yours, and that you have redeemed us for, for, for a distinct purpose, and that distinct purpose is that we should live for you, that we should enjoy you, we should glorify you, we should declare you in our own homes, in our own families, to our neighbors, to one another, even as we are doing here today in this worship service. You are our God, and we bless you for all this. And in Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.